<laughs> Important update on this episode. Uh, this, this is a special episode. Very special. It may, almost an especial episode. <laughs> an especial episode just for you. We're uh, talking about the Berlin Wall, and this is based off of a presentation that uh, my my compadre here gave. And as such, there are hey. slides. There are slides. There there are nearly one hundred slides. <laughs> all <laughs> all the great lot. slides. And so we just wanted you to know that if you would prefer to watch a video of this, right, a multimedia so. uh, sensation experience. You all you have to do is just follow the link that we're putting in the show notes. Yeah. And uh, if you don't know how to use show notes, then that's your problem. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> we can't we can't be spending all our time helping you out. Yeah. I mean, this is this is above and beyond for us really. So, yeah. just be glad that you got this little forewarning. Not the big surprise. <laughs> With that, uh we're going to go into what we recorded on Saturday and hope you enjoy. Alrighty, so uh, today is the 9th of November, 2019, uh, which is an important date because it is the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. Now, uh, Aaron, what do you know about the Berlin Wall? You should know two facts right off the bat, I think. I know that it was a wall, and okay, it was in Berlin. Very good, excellent. Uh, you, you, you passed the pop quiz. Yeah, um, so I am sort of irrationally fascinated by the Berlin Wall, and it is interesting in studying about it how much the history of it just gets sort of glossed over in American history classes, because it's like, uh, they put up a wall, um, and then Reagan went there and told them to tear it down, and they did, and then communism was done. And that's sort of your summary of, like, the latter half of the 20th century. So, um yeah, we're going to go quite a bit more in depth than that. I'm really excited because I just don't I don't know a lot. I'm here right. to get knowledge on all of this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so like uh And you will be doing live fact checking as well. I will. Um if you if you say something which I think which is uh, just obviously wrong, you're going to get a And if you <laughs> if you say something that I I'm pretty sure is wrong, you're gonna get uh you're gonna get uh where which one of this uh Okay. I'm gonna say hold up. I'm gonna go hold up. <laughs> right, yeah. Now are you also gonna color it? Because we have Zizek on the line as well. Um yeah. and he'll well, be interjecting, I, I think, it, at certain points. I don't know who among you know much about Zizek, but he, the the most important thing to know let, I'll just let him tell you for this I'm hated by many leftists he just hated by many leftists yeah I like it <laughs> I like it but he okay. likes it I can't tell if he likes the Berlin Wall or just the stream liberalism okay mm. great thanks that's what it is alright uh, so let me click there we go the Berlin Wall stood from the 13th of August, 1961, to the 9th of November, 1989, which was just about 28 years. So it's interesting to observe that it's now been down longer than it's been up. Um, but, of course, the history of the Berlin Wall extends quite a bit before this time and quite a bit after that time. So where should we start? I think you start uh, in 1945, 
when Germany surrenders uh, to the Allies and begins a period of occupation. Um, and Germany is split into four occupation zones. Uh, the Soviets get this red portion here in the east. Um, and then uh, the Western Allies divided up the rest amongst themselves. Um, you notice this part here, circled in black, uh, that's Berlin. <laughs> it's like a, um, it's a Russian nesting doll inside of Exactly. So Germany. Berlin, they decided, the four powers, as they're called, decided to occupy Berlin jointly as well because it was symbolically important, having been the capital of Germany. So they decided, well, we'll just divide this up like we did Germany, and we'll uh, neatly ignore the fact that it's deep inside the Soviet zone because I'm sure that won't cause any problems later on. <laughs> um, so this is what divided Berlin looks like. Um, the Soviets got the entire eastern half of the city because they did the actual work of liberating it. So you're, we decided to just let them have half of it, I guess, because we didn't actually do any of the work liberating Berlin. And then the western half uh, was split between France, the UK, and Britain. Um, interesting to note this little part down here. Um, we'll come back to this little area later. There's some enclaves that become kind of interesting uh, places once the wall actually goes up. Um, but in the immediate aftermath of um, World War II, the occupation zones were demarcated, um, but they weren't patrolled, and there was uh, f free movement of people. So you could go back and forth between the various sectors of Berlin and the sectors of Germany without being stopped. Um, and uh, it was kind of a utopian time at the time. All four powers were actually jointly administrating uh, Germany and Berlin and getting along with each other, um, doing the important work of denazification. Mm. <laughs> you know, I just, that's a good film to have. It's important to remember. Um, in 1946, the Soviet Union um, decides to sort of try and consolidate political situations in its uh, occupation zone and forms the Socialist Unity Party of Germany, which comes about from the merger of the Communist Party of Germany, or the KPD, and the Social Democratic Party of Germany, SPD, which were basically forced to merge by the Soviets. Uh, the SPD was bigger than the KPD, um, and the Soviets were like, uh, you guys have to get together, and by the way, the communists are in charge now. Um, so this happened in 1946. This is the handshake, um, which is depicted in the emblem, as you can see. Um, but the first two leaders were Wilhelm Pieck, who's this guy on the left here, and Otto Grotewald, who is this guy on the right. Um, this guy down here at the bottom right, uh, he will become important later on. But we'll, <laughs> I, like we'll that, I like that look. <laughs> yeah, he's a little dazed. Um, we'll come back to why he looks maybe a little forlorn in a moment. Uh, but so they merge. Um, in 1947, you have the first and what end up be being the only free elections held in the entirety of the city of Berlin. And this man, Ernst Reuter, is elected mayor of Berlin in 1947. He is a politician for the Social Democratic Party, and the Soviets don't like him at all. Uh, because, as it turns out, pre-war, he had been a communist briefly before leaving the party to join the Social Democrats. And uh, Aaron, I don't know if you know a lot about uh, the Soviets, but they really don't like people who used to be a part of their movement. So, um, well, I was I was actually led to believe that social democrats is the, the same as communists. So that's exactly mm, mm, mm. that's that's yeah. what I've learned. That's actually not the case at all. Oh, oh, <laughs> so I better give very, myself very a. Different. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. In out. fact, um, I could do a whole other presentation on how Hitler came to power largely as a result of the Social Democratic Party and the communists fighting each other. Um, but yeah. So uh, the Soviets refused to acknowledge his election. Um, and they go and organize their own election in their part of Berlin. Uh, and would you guess who wins that election? <laughs> um, the, 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 big, the big boy. Yeah, the SED. Yeah, the, the, the Communist Party, the Socialist Unity Party wins, of course. Um, so this is the point where um, both parts of Berlin start to sort of diverge. Um, they have separate governments and separate police forces from, from this point forward. Um, but weirdly, like there's still free movement of people in between things. Hmm. Uh, in 1948, uh, Stalin decides that he doesn't like West Berlin continuing to exist. So, uh, he blockades West Berlin, um, both land routes, uh, which is to say road and train and then, um, sea routes to Berlin through the rivers and basically prohibits the allies from passing through uh you know the soviet sector into west berlin um but we realize that we have planes uh so we can just fly things over uh and we do um nice little technicality here in the rules i guess and um west berlin is supplied by air for over a year and finally the soviets are like oh they're not going to give up on this are they so they decide to just uh sort of let west berlin continue to be and so it does um yeah, uh, this is General Lucius Clay. He's the military governor of the U.S. zone at this time. He was responsible for organizing uh, the Berlin airlift, and he will play a role later on. But he becomes a sort of minor celebrity in Berlin at the time because of the sort of support that he was providing to the West Berliners um, by organizing the airlift and basically keeping them all alive for over a year. Um, and uh, yeah, they ended up at the... Um, greatest tempo of the airlift they ended up supplying um more with airplanes than they ever managed to do by train so they were actually even more logistically successful than they ever thought they would be it's kind of amazing um at its tempo there were planes landing at one of the airports like every 30 seconds or so which is just crazy (laughs) to think about (laughs) uh in 1949 comes the birth of the two independent germanys um, West Germany becomes uh, the Federal Republic of Germany, um, and the Soviet sector becomes the German Democratic Republic or East Germany. And you may notice that they have the same flag here, which is kind of a problem, uh, because how are you supposed Clue. to tell which one you're in? Um, <laughs> would you believe it took them 10 years to sort this out? <laughs> Finally, the German Democratic Republic is like, fine, we will put our emblem on our flag. Uh, so they do. But uh, yeah, this is when East and West Germany finally begin. I like um, that they, they just came out. right out in East Germany and admitted to being Masons. Right. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> well, you see, so the hammer is supposed to represent like the workers and the compass right. is supposed to represent the intelligentsia, uh, which will become very ironic when they all start to leave. Um <laughs> But we'll gloss over that for now. I also like how the emblem has the German flag like as part of the emblem, so it's kind of recursive. <laughs> There's a lot of recursion going on. Yeah. Um, but they start out, so uh, Konrad Adenauer is the first leader of West Germany. He's the chancellor, um, a member of the Christian Democratic Union, which is a conservative political party. 
And then Wilhelm Pieck, who is the chairman of the Socialist Unity Party, is the first leader of East Germany. Um, but not for very long, as you see, he's kicked out in 1950 um, by this guy who you saw earlier, Walter Ubricht, who replaces him in 1950 because, um, here's the thing, he had been scheming to become the communist leader since like the 1930s. So when he wasn't chosen to be the first leader of East Germany, he was kind of real upset. Um, but Stalin was like, no, no, you don't get to do that. But eventually he maneuvers and basically gets uh, Wilhelm Pieck to resign. I have to say he looks a lot more satisfied in this photo than in the first He one. does, yes, indeed, yeah. Um, but this is much later. Um, also, look at that wide lapel. Look at the wide lapels on these jackets. It's like Pretty the crazy. jacket is almost 100% lapel. No. <laughs> what do you think about that, Zizek? I like it. Well, yeah. Zizek well, you see, at the time, that's all they had was lapel. You know, <laughs> you got to work with what you have. Yeah. Um, so a problem that emerges for East Germany almost immediately is called Republikflucht, or desertion from the Republic, which is what the East Germans call uh, leaving. Um as I mentioned, the borders are open uh, and people really don't want to live under the communists. Uh, so they leave and go to West Germany. Um, in 1950, you get about uh, 200,000 people that leave. Uh, decreases a little bit the next year, increases the next year. 1953, it goes up sharply. Why does it go up in 1953, you ask? Well, uh, there was a revolt, um, which ended up being suppressed by the Soviets who sent tanks in. So a lot of people decided that they should leave at this point, um, probably reasonably so. And from that point forward, really quite a lot of people leave every year. And for the 10-year period from 1950 to 1960, just about 20% of the population leaves and goes to the West, uh, which is particularly a problem because these are all the well-educated people, the doctors, nurses, teachers, engineers, all the people wow. represented by the compass. Um, wow. So... So the East German government is uh, pretty, pretty upset about this. And it becomes clear um, that they're going to have to do something. Um, in 1952, the East German government closes its border with West Germany and erects its portion of the Iron Curtain. But it leaves the border between East Germany and West Berlin open. So it doesn't really stop people from getting out because all they do is go to West Berlin and then they can go to West Germany. Um, but it becomes clear to a lot of people, both on the eastern side and the western side, that East Germany is going to have to do something to like stem the tide here. And it seems like they're going to have to like close the border in some way. But um, it, it's really kind of seems unreasonable that they would actually like build a wall or something like that. And indeed, uh, in 1961, um, these are the sort of battle lines that get drawn. On our side, you have John F. Kennedy, you have Nikita Khrushchev. Uh, who's premier of the USSR at the time, who's basically the one giving orders to the East Germans, uh, Walter Ulbricht, as I mentioned, Conrad Adenauer. Uh, Willy Brandt is the mayor of West Berlin, and he will have a role to play shortly. And then you have Erich Honecker, who is the security secretary of the Communist Party. Um, so this is your East-West split. So in 1961, there's a summit between <coughs> JFK and Khrushchev, and Khrushchev basically destroys JFK um, at the summit. Um, uh, so Khrushchev leaves and he's like, hey, we can push this guy around as much as we want. Uh, and he's because he's a weakling. 
Um, so he finally, Ubert has been bothering him for years that like, Hey, can we build a wall? Is that okay? And so he says, okay, fine. Um, so then Ubert tells Eric Honecker to basically do all the actual planning of it and manage the execution. Um, and, uh, so, you know, this is all going on. Meanwhile, uh, there's a press conference in June of 1961 and a West German reporter asks, uh, Walter Ubert if he thinks that, uh, Maintaining a uh, functional state would require the erection of a state border at the Brandenburg Gate, which is right in the center of Berlin uh, on the border between the two zones. And he interprets the question and replies, no one has the intention of building a wall. Um, now, I did some fact checking on this, and I found that he was lying um, big Ooh. time. Yeah. <laughs> it's two. Yep. So, um, you know. Of course, we know now they had every intention of building a wall, and it became very abundantly clear to everyone else that they had the intention of building a wall on Barbed Wire Sunday, which was the 13th of August, 1961. Um, at midnight on that day, uh, Eric Honecker gives the order to begin closing the border, and so uh, thousands of East German troops are sent to basically block off the streets um, with barbed wire and start tearing up railroad tracks and streets and just generally stand guard. So Berliners wake up on that Sunday morning uh, to a city that has been cut in half and that they can do nothing about. Basically um, families are separated from each other. People can't get to their jobs. Um, it's kind of bonkers. Here's what the Brandenburg gate looks like um, on that day. <clears throat> Used to be able to just walk right through there, but now you can't because they'll shoot you. Bad day. Um, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, the escape attempts, begin almost immediately in a place where they're particularly notable is Bernauer Strasse. Uh, Bernauer Strasse was a very interesting case because the street itself formed the border between East and West Berlin. And this meant that there were um, apartment blocks that would be in East Berlin, but their front doors opened into West Berlin, <laughs> um, which becomes relevant in a moment. But uh, first I want to talk about the first defection from East Germany, which is by this man here. Um, his name is Konrad Schumann. He is an East German border guard who has been sent to Berlin to guard the border. Um, and uh, some West German or some West Berliners are on the other side of this barbed wire, basically heckling him and telling him to come over because they see that he's chain smoking and he's like deeply anxious and whatever. Um, and so finally he just does and it's caught on tape. Um, and this becomes a very famous moment that is um, shown on newsreels and television around the world. And he hops into there was a West German police van that was basically waiting to take him away. Um, so he like hops in and they they rush him out of there as soon as possible. Um, the photograph here that you see is called the wall jumper. Very famous photograph captured at precisely the right moment um, to show him jumping over the barbed wire. Um, and then later when he's interviewed by West German media as to why he decided to defect it, he said it was because he didn't want to shoot anyone. And those were the orders that were uh, issued to the East German border guards that remained in effect for the whole time that the wall uh, stood, which was to shoot to kill anyone who tried to cross the border. And we'll come back later to the toll that that had on uh, Berliners and Germans. Um, but this is the first of many escape attempts that begin. Um, like I said, Bernauer Strasse, you have these apartment blocks that are in East Berlin, but open onto West Berlin. And, um, 
the East Berlin or the East German police think that they have pretty much solved this by closing the first floor of each of these apartment buildings so that people just can't leave out the front door. Uh, but then people start jumping out of windows and the West Berlin uh, police and fire encourage them by having like trampolines and, st- and nets that they can jump into. So quite a lot of people escape this way. You can see this picture on the left here. This is of someone who's actually being caught in a tug of war between East German police who are in her apartment trying to pull her back up into East Berlin and West Berliners on the ground. Um, the West Berliners would eventually win that tug of war. And then here you can see here's a baby being tossed from like the fourth floor of this apartment into a net. Um, but this it's this, such um, a weird idea of them being so scared of keeping people like the the wall isn't to keep people out. It's to keep uh, everyone else in. And that's so interesting. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's to keep people in. They never actually say that. But that is literally the whole point is to keep people from from leaving. Um, and, and so people take their lives into their hands in an attempt to leave. And uh, the first person who loses their life at the Berlin Wall is this woman here. Her name is Ida Siegman. Um, she jumps from her fourth floor apartment window at the Bernauerstrasse and misses the net and is killed. Um, but she would become one of 140 people who eventually die at the border. Um, so it becomes clear that some sort of response is needed, um, but it's complicated politically because... Um, the whole problem of uh, people emigrating from East Germany uh, into West Berlin and then to West Germany was a huge problem. Um, it was kind of a pain for like the Western uh, countries as well. And so privately, uh, JFK was kind of relieved that the wall got put up because it sort of solved this problem. But of course, they couldn't actually um say that and be like oh yeah we think it's fine so they basically had to organize a response that was kind of a response but wasn't a response at the same time so they create the berlin brigade of the military and they basically uh drive a convoy of jeeps uh through east germany into berlin and this would basically these soldiers would get cycled out every few months for all the way up until the 1990s um but it sort of provided a visible visible show of force uh, to the West Berliners that, um, you know, the Western powers still cared, even if they weren't going to knock the wall over anytime soon. Um, one of the first confrontations over the wall, really the only confrontation that gets anywhere near like a military confrontation happens in October of 1961. Um, what happens is, so this is checkpoint Charlie. This is, um, the main crossing point between East and West Berlin for foreign diplomats, um, and allied military. And, um, by law, the only people that could, um, man, these checkpoints were, were soldiers from the four powers. So in this case, it would be Americans on the Western side and Soviets on the Eastern side. But at this time, the Soviets started letting the East Germans, um, patrol the checkpoints and they started stopping allied uh, military vehicles or really any allied vehicles and asking for papers. Um, And uh, the Americans were not happy about this at all because we don't let people tell us what to do. Um, The British kind of put up with it because that's just the way that they are, Um, which greatly annoyed uh, Lucius Clay, who at this point had been sent back to Berlin to sort of deal with this crisis with the wall because he was popular mostly as a figurehead, but he was given some power um, to command troops and things in Berlin. So what happens after um, 
a couple diplomats get stopped, they contrive this sort of show of force. So this guy here in this car pulls up to the checkpoint. And the moment that he's asked for his papers by the East German guards, these three Jeeps with American GIs pull up and basically escort him through the checkpoint past the East Germans who have to jump out of the way. Um, and everyone sort of, um, you know, claps their hands and thinks, ah, oh, we've shown the East Germans they, uh, that we aren't going to take this. We aren't going to deal with this. Um, but they don't stop. So then we do it a second time. Um, and when we do it a second time, then the Soviets get mad at us for sort of being insolent and trying to do this, play this silly game. So they send 10 tanks to their side of Checkpoint Charlie. Um, and of course, we have to send 10 tanks in response as well. And so for a period of about uh, from 5 p.m. that evening on the day that this happened to 11 a.m. the next day, these tanks face each other basically in equal distance apart, um, spaced out exactly the same way as mirror images. Fully fueled, idling, uh, locked and loaded, ready to start World War III at the drop of a hat until finally uh, JFK and Khrushchev get on the phone. And uh, basically JFK says, if you remove the tanks and uh, sort of de-escalate the situation, we will go easy on you about the Berlin Wall. Uh, and basically saying that, uh, you know, we'll just sort of accept the Berlin Wall for now. Um, so that agreement is made and the tanks are withdrawn one at a time, one by one. Um, in this sort of goofy ballet of sorts. Um, but this is really the only time that it seems like there would be any military confrontation about the Berlin Wall. Interestingly, this confrontation takes place um, almost exactly a year prior to the Cuban Missile Crisis. And um, this is sort of a dress rehearsal for that, in a sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but shortly after that, the actual wall starts to get constructed. You know, what they put up on the actual day was just a barbed wire fence, but soon they start constructing the actual wall, uh, which is known as the stone wall, the first version of the wall, because it's mostly made out of bricks and these sort of prefab concrete pieces. You can see it's not a particularly formidable wall. It's not very tall, nor is it particularly thick. Um, here's a picture here. You can see these are some East German construction workers and they're, um, cementing, broken glass along the top of the wall um which is great love that love to see um it. yeah and then you can see sort of here's what the actual wall looked like after it was completed you had the wall which was not particularly tall i mean you could stand in a jeep and see over it and then barbed wire on top of it um this wall as i said was not very strong and so it was relatively easy for people to um escape over it um, or in some cases drive vehicles through it. There's a case where some guy stole a tank and drove it right through the wall to escape. That's one way to do it. Yeah, um, but the majority of the escape attempts that happened during the life of the Berlin Wall happened during the lifetime of this particular incarnation of the wall. Um, and you will see that East, Ger East Germany basically um, constructs more and more formidable walls to prevent people from trying to escape through it. Now, I do notice that the wall isn't see-through, which I'm led to believe is an important aspect of all these kind of walls. Oh, yeah. Um, no. See, the thing is, you might have relatives on the other side, and it was important that you just not be reminded that they exist, because um, that would be bad. Yeah. So, um, in fact, um, yeah, we're just going to pretend that... Uh, West Berlin doesn't exist, and we'll, we'll come back to that later. In 1963, JFK comes to the wall. Uh, he's right there, as you can see. Mm. Um, right next to him here, 
That's Conrad Adenauer, interestingly. Um, but he gets up on this viewing platform, which the West Berlin government erects a bunch of these viewing platforms that are way taller than the wall, sort of in defiance and to let people see their relatives and stuff. Um, East Germany is very incensed, but can't do anything about this. Um, but I just think it's funny. It basically turned um, East Germany into a zoo. Kind of, <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Um, right, exactly, yeah. Um, but this is, of course, the point of the point in time where um, JFK gives his famous Ich bin ein Berliner speech, um, which sort of raises the morale of the West Berliners, um, reassures them that, uh, you know, the U.S. and the Western powers will continue to um, protect the existence of West Berlin and that they won't be abandoned and sort of left to East Germany. Um, oh, yeah. And then so here's a, uh, a West or rather an East German map of Berlin during the period. And uh, you can see there's nothing there. There's nothing to see there. Um, why are you asking about it? There's nothing. You can't go there. Don't worry about it. Um, yeah, I just think this is sort of remarkable as a map because it's like, it's like clearly there's something there, but it's like, nah, doesn't matter. <laughs> um, yeah, it's like that. <laughs> but I want to give you um, some idea or, oh, sorry, that's a couple slides later. I'm getting conf I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, we enter the period now um, where uh, things sort of settle in with the wall, and also we enter the period of detente. Um, so Willy Brandt, you remember I mentioned he was the mayor of Berlin. Uh, he gets elected chancellor of West Germany, um, and he begins this policy that is known as Ustpolitik, which is basically a sort of de-escalation with East Germany. Um, so they basically offer East Germany recognition um, and start propping up its economy with payments um, in return for um, concessions from the East Germans for um, transit for West Germans and West Berliners into East Germany, but not, not the other way around. Um, but this is basically where tensions... Um, start to de-escalate a little bit. This is the beginning of detente, sort of as it's more widely known in general, where um, tensions between the East and the West decrease a little bit. Um, but he even goes on an official visit to East Germany, as you can see here. Um, in uh, 1971, Walter Ubrecht is kicked out by uh, that guy we saw earlier, Eric Honecker, um, who takes over. Um, you notice that they, they never adopt the same title. So Walter Ubrecht was first secretary, Eric Honecker becomes general secretary. Because um, <laughs> you can't be the second. Nobody wants to be number two. Well, right. And, um, you know, you just um, you just create a new title for yourself, basically, is how this works. Um, but, yeah. So, yeah, they, they um, sign a transit agreement in 1972, which basically allows West Germans and West Berliners to visit East Germany and East Berlin. Um, and this is great because it allows West Berliners to go and see their family in East Berlin, as well as people in West Germany to go to East Germany. Um, interesting thing to note here is that um, even though this agreement exists, the East Germans basically charge fees for things like visas um, and transit into the country. And the fees are nominally in East German marks, but you have to pay them in West German marks at a one-to-one -one exchange rate, which is, of course way higher than the actual exchange rate. And this is just a way for East Germany to acquire hard currency because their currency is always worthless and will remain so. Um, 
Eventually, the East or the West German government negotiates with East Germany to stop charging the fees to um, individual West Germans, and the West Germans just start making a massive payment for everyone every year to East Germany. Um, you know, like millions of marks go over every year just to be like, here, we're paying for these stupid fees and whatever. Um, and then later in the 1970s uh, is the Helsinki Accord, which is signed between um, many of the, the nations of the world at that time um, as part of the detente process. And basically, in theory, it obligates each country that signs it to respect basic human rights, things like freedom of speech, um, you know, free elections, things like that. And um, the Eastern Bloc signs it mostly um, as sort of a goodwill move to say, uh, you know, to the Western powers, like, hey, we're acting in good faith and all that. But they don't really think that it matters and they have no intention of actually like following through on any of the, you know, things that it says, like allowing free elections or whatever. But the fact that um, East Germany and some of the other, all the other Eastern Bloc states signed this accord um, becomes relevant later when protest movements begin. Um, but you can see here, this is Air Conacher from earlier, and then this is um, Helmut Schmidt, who has by at this point replaced um, Willy Brandt as Chancellor of West Germany. And then you have Gerald Ford over here as well. Um, in 1975, you see the construction of the most uh, well-known and notorious version of the wall um, and most secure. And you can see a sort of cross-section of it here, but I'll go through it. Um, <clears throat> so we'll start on the East Berlin. Let's imagine that you are um, an Easterner who's trying to escape. What you would be confronted with first is a, is a concrete fence that's not particularly formidable. If you climbed over it, you would then face a barbed wire fence that's electrified so that the moment you touch it, it sets off alarms um, in these guard towers that you see here and starts these um, uh, searchlights going, they're automatic searchlights. If you manage to climb over this fence, you would land either on these tank traps, which are meant to catch vehicles that might drive through, or on these, which are beds of nails, uh, which mm. is great. Um, mm -hmm. If you manage to get through those, you then have to cross the death strip, which is this area of... <laughs> The death um, strip. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the that's other stuff isn't the death strip. That's right. <laughs> well, so the death strip is basically a big line of sand with no vegetation that is raked constantly so that footprints are easily visible. And the whole point of it existing is that it is a free fire zone for the guards. Um, sometimes right. in the death strip as well are attack dogs that are nose to nose on leashes. Um, yeah, it's great. Um, if you cross the death strip, then you have this little ditch here, which is also meant to catch vehicles if they get through the tank traps. And then you come to what people think of as the wall itself, which the East Germans call the border marker, which is 12 feet high and topped with a, a sewer pipe that is rounded to make it very difficult for you to climb over. So that's what you have to go through if you're trying to go through the wall. And indeed, this design of the wall is very effective at just discouraging anyone from trying to go through the wall. Instead, most people that escape from this point forward, escape through other means going over the wall or under it or um, going across the river that formed the border in some places or, you know, more like subterfuge means like forging passports and passes and things like that. But almost no one after this wall is constructed tries to actually like cross it at that point because it's just too ridiculous. And you can see here's what the death strip 
and the wall fortifications looked like you can see the the inner wall and the the electrified wall and then the tank traps in the strip and here's what it looks like from a building you can really see the the death strip the raked sand um very clearly here it's very wide too it's uh... it's very wide i want to show you how ridiculous this got so remember that enclave i was telling you about earlier Mm-hmm. This is it. It's a little piece of land called Steinstücken. Um, this is part of West Berlin, this part here um, in blue. And you can see they basically have this entire zone of vegetation or free of vegetation around it. They've they constructed the wall around it. So this is a very um, silly scenario. Um, basically what happened, there's this part here, this little thin piece didn't actually belong to Steinstücken at first. But after they erected the wall, these people would have to go through the border twice because they'd have to cross into East Berlin and then back into West Berlin to like do anything. So an agreement is made that transfers territory from uh, East Berlin to West Berlin so that they can build a little road, um, which is heavily fortified then by the East Germans so that no one can cross into it. Um, But another crazy thing is that there's a railroad that goes right through this, which is an East German railroad. So there are also fortifications along the railroad line so that no one can get onto or off of it um, as it passes through this little enclave. But this is just how crazy this whole system ended up being um, overall. Um, in 1982, Helmut Kohl becomes chancellor of West Germany, and he becomes a very important figure um, in the eventual demise of the wall and reunification of uh, West of um, Germany. And then things really start um, taking a turn in 1985. Mikhail Gorbachev becomes the general secretary of the Soviet Union and begins the reform programs for which he is known, uh, Glasnost and Perestroika, which are um, openness and economic restructuring. And basically... He takes control of the Soviet Union um, when it's in severe economic distress. Um, Basically, the price of oil has fallen precipitously, and that's the thing that the Soviet Union is highly dependent on. Also, they've been mired in a war in Afghanistan since 1979 that's just been a money drain. Um, And so everyone's really dissatisfied. Um, so he says, okay, well, we'll restructure things a little bit. And also, you're allowed to, um, you know, speak a little bit more openly. Uh, and he thinks that this is genuinely going to be positive and that people are going to be sort of thankful for the communists sort of opening things up. Instead, people are just angry about the communists and they can go, hey, this sucks, doesn't it? Like, and people are like, yeah, I've been thinking that too. Um, and so protest movements start to coalesce as people are allowed to speak freely. Um, this is not a protest movement. This is just something I find interesting. In 1986, uh, the East Germans celebrate the 25th anniversary of the wall. I don't know why they thought this was a good idea, but they had a birthday <laughs> party for the wall because they thought it was great. Um, you also, can see what uh, they have here. Bad helmets, yeah, go ahead. Bad helmets. Bad helmets. Yeah. Interesting story about the helmets. It was actually a, a rejected uh, World War II Nazi design um, that they just <laughs> took up. <laughs> oh, that's pretty good. They're like, well, we can't use the same helmets as the Nazis did, so we'll use this other design that they had. Yeah, very silly looking helmets made them very, very uh, uh, distinctive. Um, but yeah, you can see here on this giant thing behind them what they actually called the wall in East Germany, which was the anti fascist protective barrier, because it was meant to, of course, deter fascists from coming over into East Germany and subverting oh, the state. Yes. Right. Um, and you can see. <laughs> 
down here in this straw hat here, that's Eric Honecker. Um, he's a he's a short man. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, later on in 1987, uh, Reagan comes and of course gives his famous speech. He's outside the Brandenburg Gate. Now, uh, you uh, were probably taught that um, that speech was instrumental in bringing down the wall, right? Yeah, oh yeah, he just showed up and he was like, folks, yeah. can we not? And they were like, oh, snap. Can I get a big fact check on that one? All right, just can looking you, can, it up right can, now. Can, well, I mean, can you give me a uh, can you give me a like four Pinocchios on that? Yeah. So it turns out. Um, oh wow. Um, it turns out that this speech basically made no difference, and uh, you will figure that out because it happened in 1987, and the wall didn't fall for another two years. Um, but yeah, basically, he gave this speech, and the East Germans were like, "Cool story," um, and basically ignored him. And the only reason that we think of this speech in such, um, you know, historically important terms now is mostly as a result of hindsight. People go, oh, look, he gave the speech and then the wall fell down. That, that must add something to do with that. Crazy, but it, it really crazy how time progresses in, a, yeah, right. <laughs> in that way. Yeah, it's really just a fault of hindsight. Um, and it didn't really have that much to do with it. I mean, it excited the West Berliners. But of course, the wall remained for another two years, and it didn't seem like the wall was going to come down anytime soon. Um, but then something starts to happen. Uh, this guy enters the stage. His name is Miklos Nimit, and he's the prime minister of Hungary. Um, and you, at this point, I you should probably say, ask me. I have to say, thinner lapels. Yeah, thinner. Well, you know, yeah. it's Hungary. Um, but you're probably wondering why a guy from Hungary matters in this story no. uh and uh i thought that this was interesting too when i learned about it um but the thing with miklos is that um he kind of secretly has a desire even though he's a member of the communist party and he becomes the head of the communist party in hungary he would really like to sort of do away with communism he's like a big big reformer um and so he basically starts doing that just sort of on his own um, mostly because at this point, Gorbachev has said that um, the Soviet Union won't intervene in the internal affairs of any Eastern Bloc country to basically prop up um, the rule of the communists in those countries. So Miklos is like, all right, I got a free hand. So um, he takes an extraordinary step in 1989, which we will get to in a moment because I've forgotten the uh, order of the slides again. Okay, 1989. What's the first thing that happens in 1989? The first thing that happens in 1989 is the last death of someone at the Berlin Wall. Um, and I want to talk about the ways that people tried to escape over the Berlin Wall. Um, there were some simple things like trying to fake passports and travel documents. It used to be really easy in the beginning to get a fake passport because the West Germans pretty much just handed them out to um, East Berliners. Like if you could get in contact with an East, a West Berliner, they could bring you a fake passport, which you could then use. So then the East Germans basically required um, entrance passes that showed that you had crossed over from West Berlin and then were crossing back. So this would, in theory, catch someone who was from East Germany who had never crossed over to start with. Um, but then you could fake those too. Um, but they made it progressively uh, harder to fake these documents. 
Um, just hiding in the trunks of cars um, was a very successful strategy at first. So then the East Germans start inspecting vehicles. Um, they build this massive inspection station at Checkpoint Charlie um, to basically pick over people's cars and make sure they're not smuggling people or things out. Um, swimming across the rivers and canals that form the border in certain places. Um, like I said, crashing a tank through the wall. Um, tunneling under the wall, that was actually a popular form uh, for a long time. Several tunnels, tunnels got dug under the wall. Um, escaping through the sewers, so when the border was sealed, the East Germans didn't seal the sewer tunnels, which went right under um, between uh, the two Berlins. So for a while there, you could uh, escape through the sewers. Eventually, they installed grates, which prevented you from doing that. Um, and then people tried to escape over the wall um, using hot air balloons or aircraft. Um, and then a, a story that I find particularly funny is just driving a car at high speed through the crossing point. Um, so it used to be that, um, you know, it was a crossing point that was just a straight through crossing point. You could just drive through it. And so someone did at high speed. Um, so then they installed a bar um, to stop you from doing that. So then someone just built a car that was shorter than the bar and drove under the bar. <laughs> so then they then they built, like you saw in those pictures earlier, this sort of slalom course so that you couldn't just drive straight through it. And that confounded people enough, I guess, to, to stop doing it. But I like this because it's an application of sort of the, like, um, they'll build a better idiot uh, law. So it's like, oh, well, we'll stop you. We'll put a bar. And it's like, okay, challenge accepted. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the last person to die at the wall dies in March of 1989. His name is Winifried Freudenberg, and he dies falling from a, a homemade hot air balloon that he had made. Um <laughs> <laughs> to basically go over the wall. He, he unfortunately fell out of the hot air balloon and was killed. Um, but over the life of the wall, 140 people are killed at the border. Um, something close to 90 of them. I don't remember the exact figure. It's all the figures, all the people whose names are in bold here um, are people that were shot by the East German border guards um, attempting to cross over the wall. And most of the people who um, died at the wall who were not shot drowned in the river. Um, trying to cross over um, but yeah there was an incredible death toll um, as a result of the shoot to kill order that existed um, basically to shoot anyone who tried to escape and it's uh, you know it, it became a real problem for East Germany because it was very bad PR for them anytime that someone got shot they couldn't really cover it up given that West Berlin was right there and the West German media um basically reported on it every time that it happened um you know who was killed and they would talk to their relatives and all that and get their story so um yeah i mean it was a humanitarian disaster basically um but they kept going all the way up until 1989 um they always denied the east german government that they had any orders to shoot um people who crossed over but of course that was like plainly ridiculous because you could see it happening you know on like a daily or weekly basis um but yeah so later in 1989 uh in june of that year uh miklos Nemet announces that he is dismantling hungary's portion of the iron curtain uh they have a border fence with austria and he's taking it down um which is crazy town because it basically means that uh the border is open between east and west um, and this is a particularly uh, a bad problem for the East Germans because it turns out that a lot of East German citizens go to Hungary on vacation because it's one of the few places that they can go. 
Um, so of course they can go down to Hungary, they can go on vacation. Well, now they can just cross the border uh, into Austria, and now they're out, and they can go back up into West Germany and live their lives. Um, so the East Germans ask the Hungarians, or rather demand that the Hungarians ensure that no East Germans will be allowed to cross the border. And the Hungarian government says, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll absolutely do that. Totally! Yeah. Yes! Uh, and they, yes! And they, uh, uh, they do not do that at all. They're basically <laughs> like, nah, nah. Um, so the um, East Germans then try to be clever, and they pressure the Czechoslovakians, which of course is this country here, and say, why don't you close your border with Hungary? That way no one can go into Hungary. And the Czechs go, Okay, fine. Uh, we'll do that. Um, so uh, the East Germans celebrate and think they've been very clever. We've stemmed the tide once again. Instead, what happens is that East Germans go to Prague and occupy the grounds of the West German embassy there, demanding free passage to West Germany, um, which, after some negotiations, is eventually granted. Um, basically... Um, the West Germans negotiate, negotiate with the East Germans and are like, come on, you got to let these people go to West Germany. And Eric Honecker is like, fine, we will let them go, but they have to go in sealed trains through East Germany into West Germany. Um, and we will make a big show of confiscating their documents um, at the border and basically stripping them of East German citizenship. And as a result of being um, on trains that pass through East Germany, they will be publicly shamed for, you know, deserting the Republic. Um, and this is a terribly bad idea because instead people greet the trains jubilantly as they pass through or try to get on them themselves. Um, also, sealed trains, not a great thing uh, historically in Germany. Yeah, <clears throat> uh, yeah real bad idea. Um, they, they wear those uh, second the Plan B Nazi hats. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, a lot of historical parallels there. Um, so that kind of backfires massively on them. And yeah, so um, it becomes so excessive that um, you know the at the time of people escaping to Hungary, the East Germans are just leaving their cars in the streets, sometimes with the keys still in them. Um, you know, because they're just going to leave them there uh, and travel to the west. So there are Trabants littering the streets of Hungary and Prague. Um, and indeed, um, Hungary actually contrives this uh, event, which they call um, the, pic- the Pan-European Picnic. Um, and they basically have this picnic on the border between Hungary and Austria. And it's meant to sort of symbolize a, a, a sort of an opening of the border and all that. Um, and they tell the Hungarian or the, the East Germans who have gathered in Hungary waiting, they're like, um, you didn't hear this from us, but the border is going to be open um, for a brief period of time. Uh, unguarded and you can probably sneak across and at the meantime they also tell the west germans they're going to be a bunch of east germans coming over so you should probably prepare for that so the west germans send a bunch of train carriages into austria um and all of these east germans show up at this picnic and at some point the uh east or the hungarian border guards open the gates between uh the two countries and they just stream across and uh are you know they're issued passports pretty much immediately as West Germans, um, and that's that. So, um, basically, all of a sudden, this problem of emigration has cropped up again. Um, the problem now is that it takes place um, amidst a backdrop of protests happening. Um, there's these protest movements that have begun to form, as, I, as I've said before. Um, but against all of that, 
East Germany celebrates his 40th birthday and has a big birthday party. And they invite who else? Mikhail Gorbachev. Um, you can see him here checking his watch, probably checking his watch because he really doesn't want to talk to Eric Honecker, who he hated. Um, he said he was an idiot. Um, they really did not like each other. Um, Eric Honecker was basically a Stalinist, so he was not down with Gorbachev's reformist ideas at all. Um, and uh, meanwhile, Gorbachev is like, you have to change things or you're going to, you know, your country is going to cease to exist. Like, you're going to have to give something. Um, so they did not see eye to eye at all. Um, and during this um, this anniversary ceremony, there's this parade. Um, and Gorbachev is paraded down the street with a bunch of the East Germans. And people just call out to him on the side of the street, Gorby, help us, Gorby, save us, hoping, hoping that his presence would um, cause some of the reforms that have happened in other Eastern Bloc states to take place in East Germany. Um, but it doesn't really come to pass. Um, things stay the same. And so these protest movements get stronger and stronger. Um, and from this point, you know, there's basically been protests happening every Monday in the city of Leipzig. Um, there's just sort of this regular protest that happens. And gradually this movement spreads out to the rest of the company. People are regularly gathering in the streets, protesting the government, basically asking for free elections um, and free movement and things like that. Um, and it becomes clear to everyone else who's in power in East Germany that um, Eric Honecker is sort of in a fantasy land and he's not really uh, living in reality anymore. So he needs to go. Um, so he gets kicked out and they bring in this new guy, Egon Krenz, who will serve um, for a handful of months, basically. Um, and uh, he's not a reformer as such, but he sees the need to do something about uh, this crisis that has enveloped and, uh, the government. He does, go on, he does go on to become a Ghostbuster. That's true, yes. Um, <clears throat> Egon. <laughs> uh, you know, I never made that connection oh. before. He even looks kind of similar, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, amidst this backdrop, so, you know, he comes to power, Egon Krenz comes to power in October. On November 4th, 1989, there is the largest demonstration in East German history at Alexanderplatz in East Berlin. Um, it is officially sanctioned that it's it's so big. Like they, th It's the first protest that the government actually says that it approves of. And indeed, people from the ruling party show up at the protest and say, uh, yeah, things are bad and we hear you and we're going to fix them. One of the people who shows up is this guy, Gunther Schabowski, who is the uh, leader of the Berlin uh, local of the SED. And he basically shows up and tries to say, like, yes, we hear your concerns and things like that um, in an attempt to placate the people. Um, and then we arrive on the 9th of November, 1989. And uh, what happens on the 19th of November, 1989, is that there is a Politburo meeting, um, which is basically, you know, the it's Egon Krenz and his advisors who sort of rule East Germany. And they have decided that they should just... Um, loosen the travel restrictions basically so they write up some new rules that basically say that um, people will be allowed to leave the country they can get visas uh, which will be given on short notice so you can just show up at a border or to a police station and say uh hey i want to you know go to such and so country and that's fine um so they make this um regulation and you know they 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 make it official and all that 
Um, Gunter Schabowski, in addition to being the leader of the Berlin chapter of the party, is also the government spokesperson um, for the press conferences that they had recently started doing. So he drops by Egon Krenz's office later that day after the Politburo meeting and says, hey, what do I need to talk about at the press conference this evening? And Egon says, oh, there's some new uh, travel rules um, here and hands him a memo, uh, but doesn't really tell him anything about it. Um, so Shabovsky sort of peruses the memo in the car in the drive over to where he gives the press conference and then has the press conference. He announces the new travel um, rules, you know, which say um, there will be reduced travel restrictions. You will be able to travel to other countries on short notice, things like that. Um, and someone asks him, a reporter asks him, when do these rules go into effect? And uh, unfortunately for, for Shabovsky, um, because he had not gotten the full story, the intention from the Politburo was that the rules would go into effect the next day on the 10th of November. And that was written on the memo, but it was written on the second page of the memo. So Shabovsky, who did not have time to read the whole memo, is sort of caught off guard by this question, looks over the memo real fast and then says, uh, based on the information that I have, it takes effect immediately without delay, um, oh, which is no. kind of a huge mistake. <laughs> um, and with uh, that giant accident, the Berlin Wall is effectively opened. Um, and um, it takes people, um, the reporters in the room sort of don't know what to make of it at first. They're like, they don't kind of recognize the significance because the announcement is written in this sort of bureaucratic language, right? They're not like, oh, we're opening the wall or whatever. It's just like, oh, um, travel restrictions, so on and so forth. Finally, somewhere, someone at the AP connects the dots and is like, wait a minute. East Germany has basically just opened its borders. And so that goes out onto the wire. And then it just sort of cascades and it becomes breaking news. <laughs> Uh, and so just like that, um, the wall is open, um, or so people think, and they stream um, towards the wall. This gets broadcast on both East and West German TV, these new um, rules. So East Germans um, run to the <laughs> wall where the border guards have not received um, any instructions at all. Um, and they are pressing at the at the walls saying um Shabovsky said we can go through and things like this and the east german border guards are like what are you talking about so they try to call their superiors no one is available and so finally they just open the gates and let people through and from that point forward it's the berlin crazy. wall is indeed open it's crazy to think that that could have just happened probably at any point mhm <laughs> yeah like literally, literally if enough people had gathered <laughs> it probably would have been it, it would have just happened because 
it was clear to the border guards that like they could not shoot everyone that was there, nor would they, right? Like, I mean, there's so many people, it just sort of made it completely unrealistic to even think about. Um, but yeah, from that point forward, um, people are just streaming across and the party lasts several days, perhaps the biggest party in European history um, of people crossing um, back and forth between East and West Berlin being reunited. Uh, you can see people climb onto the wall almost immediately. Um, yeah. And, and then people start taking axes and hammers to the wall almost immediately as well, because it's become meaningless at this point. Um, and um, people start, um, you know, chipping off little pieces of the wall, which they keep or start distributing and um, pieces of the wall are now quite expensive these days. Um, you can still get them on eBay or whatever, but yeah. Um, you can see here on this photo, I like, there's a bunch of East German border guards standing on top of the wall. Not doing anything about it, though. <laughs> Just watching. Um, yeah. Um, and so from this point, um, East and West Berlin, um, they aren't properly reunited, but there's free travel between them now, and you can go back and forth. Um, and uh, the wall is left to decay for a long time. Um, it doesn't get torn down immediately. It takes until 1992 for the entire wall to be dismantled. Um, but you can see the damage that these uh, um, people have done to the wall just by tearing it to pieces with hammers and axes. Um, uh, uh, here's another famous photo that you see. of. Um, basically, they did decide shortly after this point that they cut a bunch of holes in the wall to make more crossing points. Um, and so they dismantled sections of it. Um, but uh, the two Germanys still aren't reunified. Um, and this becomes a, a, a serious point for the protesters in East Germany, who, contrary to the expectations of the East German government, don't stop protesting. The East Germans are like, well, we've given them free movement, so surely uh, that'll be it for them, that they'll be satisfied. Um, they were not. Um, and their rallying cries um, before the wall was opened, they had been rallying around the slogan, uh, we are the people, basically trying to reassert, you know, you know, popular rule. After the wall is opened, that slogan changes slightly to we are one people, uh, basically demanding uh, reunification um, with West Germany. And German reunification um, becomes mired in this sort of political um quagmire it's like a it's it's like a house of cards level like negotiation between um a whole bunch of different countries that have a stake in it but it happens remarkably quickly um in november november 28th of 1989 just a couple weeks after the wall falls cole announces helmet cole and there's this greater cooperation between the germany the two germanys um in march 1990 the party of democratic socialism which was what the um, Socialist Unity Party had renamed itself to at that point, um, loses East Germany's first free elections. Um, and a grand coalition led by the CDU and a name named, named uh, Lothar de Maziere is elected specifically on the platform of reunifying Germany as quickly as possible. Um, on July 1st, 1990, East Germany enters into a monetary union with West Germany and the Deutsche Mark becomes currency of East Germany. Um, on August 23rd of 1990, the East German uh, Volkskammer, which is their parliament, passes a res resolution 
which declares basically that um, East Germany accedes to the Federal Republic of Germany um, and basically says East Germany is dividing itself into six states, and those six states are joining all of the states of the Federal Republic of Germany. Um, on August 3rd, 31st, 1990, um, the Unification Treaty is signed between East and West Germany. And you would think that completes reunification, but it doesn't um, because Germany is still occupied by the four powers who um, basically have the power to make or break reunification. And the interesting thing is that um, almost nobody wanted reunification um, from either the East or the West. Um, Britain, which was led uh, by Margaret Thatcher at this point, really didn't want Germany to reunify. Um, Margaret Thatcher used to carry a map of Germany in 1938 to bring to meetings to show people like the danger of a unified Germany. Um, France. We don't want initially, to, Nobody can handle this much Germany. Right, exactly. Initially, France is also like, we don't want to reunify Germany. They've invite, invaded us three times in like the span of a hundred years. Uh, and we're not down for that. Um, but eventually um, they get certain guarantees from West Germany. Um, and so they drop their opposition. Um, the Soviet Union is also not super into a reunified Germany, but is also super falling apart itself at this point and doesn't really have that much to say in it. They don't really like at this point, there's sort of a power struggle between who's actually in charge of the Soviet Union at this point, And it's a huge cluster. Um, who is really for a united Germany is the Americans under George H.W. Bush, who think that it's just great and uh, basically push it ahead and drag everyone else into it, kicking and screaming. Um, and so um, on September 12th, 1990, the treaty on the final settlement with respect to Germany is signed in Moscow. Uh, it's also known as the two plus four treaty because it's the two Germanys and the four powers. And basically during that, um, the four powers basically agree to end their occupation of both Germanys, and they forfeit all remaining rights they had as the victors of World War II. Um, this treaty also officially sort of ends World War II. It serves as the final peace treaty um, between the warring states, the remaining warring states of um, World War II, um, and basically allows uh, East Germany and West Germany to reunite into Germany on the basis of some conditions, which we'll get to in a moment. And so on October 3rd, 1990, um, Germany is officially reunited and East Germany joins the Federal Republic as five new states. I said six, but it's five. Um, Berlin is officially reunited as, the, as a federal city. So it becomes sort of like how D.C. is, where it's not a state, but it is a um, you know, constituent part. Um, and it becomes the capital of the Federal Republic of Germany um, as reunited Germany becomes known. Um, and then on March 15th, 1991, uh, the two plus two for two plus four treaty um, enters into force, which restores full sovereignty to Germany. And it becomes a fully independent state again for the first time since 1945. Um, and like I said, there were a lot of concessions um, and responses to reunification that happened. Um, this is basically what I said. The UK was very opposed. The French were initially opposed, but agreed after the Germans agreed to the establishment of a monetary union which would eventually become the euro. So at this point, the euro was basically being mapped out, even though it wouldn't happen for another uh, decade or so. But basically, the, the French said, um, 
you know, in exchange for you deepening your ties with the rest of Europe to basically make war sort of economically impossible, um, we will agree to allow you to reunify. Uh, the Soviet Union was opposed to reunification, tried to make it contingent on Germany leaving NATO, but um, didn't get that to happen. And, you know, the U.S. was like, this is great. We think this is fine. Uh, why, don't, why don't we just make it happen? Um, so the terms were that Germany would continue to be a member of the European Union, which was at th that time called the European Community, um, and join a newly established monetary union. Um, it would reduce the size of its military. It would renounce weapons of mass destruction. It would have to accept its border with Poland as its eastern border and abandon claims on former territories. This was something that West Germany had not done um, for a long time initially under like Konrad Adenauer. West Germany insisted that, um, you know, it was the government of both West Germany and East Germany, as well as of territories that were now in Poland and um, basically re refused to acknowledge that it had lost those territories. Um, eventually, they um, in 1990, they signed a treaty with Poland that said, OK, fine, um, this is our border now. Um, also, Germany would pay 55 billion Deutschmarks to the Soviet Union in gifts and loans. Um, and Soviet troops would leave East Germany by 1994. Um, also, the territories that made up the former East Germany became a permanent nuclear weapons-free zone. Um, so NATO stations nuclear weapons in what used to be West Germany, but cannot station them in what used to be East Germany. That was important to the Soviet Union for some reason. I don't know why it matters. It seems like it doesn't make that big of a difference, but whatever. And yeah, Germany was reunified um, in, in 1990. Um, there's not a whole lot that remains of the wall today. One of the most famous sections is this what, that you see here, the East Side Gallery, which is a sort of public art installation um, where people have painted or graffitied on the wall. Um, you can see um, these are these famous faces here. Um, this is by an artist whose name escapes me. His first name is Terry. I don't remember his last name. Um, and then, of course, there is this very famous work of art, which is called uh, My God, Help Me to Escape This Deadly Love. And it depicts a uh, socialist fraternal kiss between Leonid Brezhnev and Eric Honecker uh, from a famous photo that was taken of them. Um, that's sort of an interesting topic, the socialist fraternal kiss all on its own. But um, this is um, one of the most photographed pieces at the East Side Gallery. Um, as for you know, the wall in Berlin itself, really the only indication that it even existed is that its former path is traced out by rows of cobblestones where it used to go, um, which sometimes seems really weird when it goes like through buildings and stuff. Um, but its whole path is basically traced out through Berlin. Um, that's, that's really all there is. There is a section of it that remains near Bernauerstrasse as a museum where the sort of death strip is preserved. Um, but sections of the wall as it was being dismantled, got shipped all over the world. Um, and so there are pieces of the Berlin Wall all across the world, probably some close to you, wherever you may be, um, that are uh, stand either as like art pieces or as, you know, mementos of a time that passed by, or they're just sort of there. Um, the weirdest place that a piece of the Berlin Wall has ended up is at a casino in uh las vegas where it's used as the wall for the men's bathroom and there are urinals mounted on it 
Uh, so you can go and pee on the Berlin Wall if you feel like it. Um, yeah, <laughs> kind of weird. Uh, <laughs> that sounds fun. Yeah, um, but that's, uh, you know, that's the story of the Berlin Wall in, uh, I don't know, about an hour or so. I for- I don't know how long we've been going at this point. Um, yeah. Um, so what's yeah, crazy is, is how much of it was just like, um, people decided to be like, to just stop playing along. Right. Exactly. I mean, that's kind of, yeah. Um, you know, when Gorbachev came to power and sort of said, um, you know, we won't immediately shoot you if you say bad things anymore Then people are like, all right, well, you know, I'm gonna quit playing this game. Um, and enough people basically did that, that built up that, um, you know, forced, uh, political change to happen. Um, 1989 is probably the most recent instance we've had of like uh, major revolutions changing um, the governments of large numbers of countries on the planet. I mean, lots of there were lots of protest movements. There were lots of governmental change. There are protest movements that didn't result in governmental change, even that still echo because 1989 was also uh, the year of Tiananmen Square. Um, it's interesting. I know I've been telling you a lot uh, in preparations to this that I just keep drawing parallels between 1989 and our current moment in time um, as the world is engulfed in lots of, um, you know, uh, upheavals and protest movements in places like Hong Kong and Chile. And there's, uh, again, a just sort of general growing discontent that people have um, with their governments, which interestingly, the governments that they have discontent at with now are largely a result of the uh, system that was put in place after 1989, the so-called new world order as uh, George HW Bush put it, but this, yeah, this sort of, um, you know, system of governance, neoliberalism and all that finance. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Um, And so, you know, it's kind of (laughs) everyone's upset with that now too. So it will be very interesting to see um, what becomes of that. And also, of course, walls have been a topic of discussion lately, and I hope that I've sort of demonstrated the uselessness of walls. Um, They're just sort of an expensive boondoggle, and they don't do much. I mean, uh, the thing is, you know, um, even what they mostly do is piss people off. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, um, if... If Donald Trump wanted to build a wall that was as formidable as he hoped, he would have to do it on the sort of scale that the East Germans did, which was massively expensive and was a huge economic drain. I mean, it's just not really feasible. Um, And it's just silly. It's a waste of resources. Um, And, you know, I can think of no historical walls that, like, still actually serve their purpose as separation barriers. I mean, like the Berlin Wall... And, uh, I mean, you can go back historically, right? Like the great wall of China and Hadrian's wall and all that, like walls mostly just become historical relics because the thing is, uh, even though walls stay in place, the people around them don't. And there's really nothing that you can do about that because time marches on. Um, and, uh, time makes a mockery of all our plans. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's Uh, a good note to, uh, leave it on. Yeah. That's uh, that's that's all I got. Yeah, I just think to me it's really interesting. The the my takeaway from it is that things appear impossible and, and they they appear just like kind of unworkable and at a stalemate. Um, right. It just seemed it like last. the wall was gonna be there. 
forever, right? Yeah. Like until at a certain point, sudden, it's like, well, this is just going to remain until it just isn't anymore. And it's amazing how how little effort it takes to to pass the tipping point. Right. All, all, you, all you have to do like, is just sort of snap out of it and be like, wait a minute, it doesn't have to be like this. And I think a lot of people around the world are kind of snapping out of it about a lot of things. So that's kind of I hopeful. think so, too. Yeah, yeah. Really off off brand for us, but I know that's a really good. <laughs> hey, you know what? You know what? You're welcome. <laughs> I better I better cut this off before we go. Oh yeah. <laughs> I have no idea what I'm doing. I was not prepared for this. I'm trying and I'm learning. Thank you for your patience. There's so many mistakes I have already made, but I'm working to better day by day and i think i'm gonna make it but for now i'll say i have no idea what i'm doing i have no idea what 